If you've got a Bible, turn with me to one of the most interesting and strange chapters in all of Scripture. Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to give you a little preview of uh, something that's coming that I've decided in the fall. In the fall, um, on Wednesday nights, as a part of what we're doing, we're going to go through the book of Revelation. That's what I'm predicting. And I do know the hour and the time and the date of that. But not of when the Lord shall return. Yeah. Yeah. For some of you, it's uh, a pastor takes on revelation at his own risk. All right? Only at a time. And, and we'll, we'll go through original meat. We'll do like we do all Bible studies. Original meaning. And then how we bridge the context to today. So uh, there won't be charts and signs and those kind of things, but we will talk through it. Okay? So we're going to do that on Wednesday nights in uh, in uh, the fall, starting in August or so. And the good thing about that is probably about that time I'm going to need some sabbatical time to work on my dissertation. I'll just let Alan take over after we get to Revelation 4, and I'll let him go the rest of the way. How's that? Is that all right? So... I'll cover the I'll cover the churches in Revelation one and two, three, and then let Alan take over when we get to the the good stuff. All right. Yeah, I know. So, anyways, well, no, but Alan's getting a little sick there. He's got issues going on. Yeah. Revelation chapter twelve. Here's the interesting thing about Revelation chapter twelve. I want to apologize on the front end about my voice. Uh, I, it's one of those things. I thought I was done with the cold and had a little stuff in my throat apparently, and when you push through two sermons and teaching Sunday school when I took a little nap this afternoon and lit, by little I mean little like 20 minutes when I woke up my voice had gone down a couple of octaves and was no longer functioning well and so it may have been a good night for me to sing I could have had a deep yeah that's it so alright we're going to look at Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 12 is kind of a synopsis of history until now okay and so it tells us um, that there was a wondrous and great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. Now, who's the woman here? That's good. We'll move on. All right. Uh, she, it, it really has kind of a dual meaning. It's Obviously, it'll be Mary here in a moment because of the birth she's going to give, but she it's representative more of the nation of Israel. Okay, and That's the twelve stars on the head. Okay? With the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon. Who's the enormous red dragon? Satan, with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. We're not going to go through all of that. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Those are the third. That's the um, where we get the third of the angels that came in the rebellion. They came. Uh, notice where they're not. They are not in hell, right? They're on earth, okay? So the demons have been swept onto the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so he might devour her child the moment it was born. I preached on this a couple of Christmases ago, and I said you never see this image on Christmas cards. This is the violent side of Christmas. Jesus is preparing to be born. And what we don't see with away in a manger, little Jesus, no crying 
he makes is that the birth of Jesus was a major strategic shift in the ongoing war between God and his enemy. It was a D-Day-like invasion. Now, I wasn't born when Normandy happened. And I don't have experience knowing people that I are my relatives that know about it or friendships of people that were there. But I've watched documentaries and I've seen reenactments. And I know that that was a major strategic shift and shifted the balance of power, even though the casualties were great in the Great War War. Jesus coming to earth was almost... Well, it was very similar. But instead of thousands storming a beach, it was God himself storming humanity. And so you get this picture that Jesus is about to come, and Satan realizes that if he can destroy the child, then he's wiped away the plan. It's interesting because... Uh, we've just gone through these temptations on Sunday morning, and there was that temptation for Jesus to jump and say, basically prove to us that God's been taking care of you. Well, Revelation tells us God had been protecting his son and that child from the moment of birth. She gave birth to a son, a male child who would rule all nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. There's just no way we can get into all the symbolism, but you get the picture. That uh, There are a lot of people that talk about Herod getting rid of the kids, the flight to Egypt that happened. Verse 7, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven, and the great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the world astray. He was hurled to earth and his angels with him. So here's the picture you get. That God and Satan have had this war, and that Satan was defeated, and that he and his angels were flung to earth. What you also get the sense of here in a moment is that the dragon makes a major offensive against the children of God. Now, we're going to jump down to verse 13. We'll come back to verse 10. But verse 13, When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of her great eagle so that she might fly to the place preferred to her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times and a half to the time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river, and the dragon spewed out of its mouth. The dragon was enraged at the women, woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. All right? Like I said, we don't have time to get into all the symbolism there, but the point is that there is a war raging. And Satan has shifted the focus of his war from the heavenly realm to us. Right? 
to those who are children of the woman. Now, we're not necessarily children of Israel by birth, but the idea there is Israel represents the people of God, and we are the children of God. And it says that he is making war against her offspring and those who obey God's commandment and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, look at verse 10. You also have to realize chapter 12 is not in chronological order like we would like for it to be. It jumps around a little bit. It goes to the war in heaven. It goes to Jesus being born back to the war in heaven over to the end. It, you know, it's John didn't care that we would be sitting here years later going, could you write this down in a chart for us? He just, John's not thinking about that, all right? He's just writing what he sees. Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God. This is way ahead, jumping ahead. And the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers. Who's that? Satan. He who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. You ever think about this? You ever known somebody was making false accusations about you? You ever known that was happening and how frustrating that can be? Here's the deal. Satan's doing that continually against you. Even now. Verse 11. They overcame him. Who's they there? It's us. Believers. Past, present, and future. And here's how they did it. By the blood of the Lamb. By the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. There's threefold thing there that tells us about the power that we have. And the first thing is, it tells us that we have power because of the absolute power found in the blood of Jesus. I mentioned this morning, one of the temptations that Christ encountered there was to, to uh, shortchange or to shortcut God's plan. And that would have meant that the cross was not a part of the plan. If he would have bowed down to Satan, the cross would have been part of the plan. I even mentioned that last week, that he could have proved to the people who he was and then they wouldn't have crucified him. But Jesus knew that there was power in the laying down of his own life. And the gospel of Jesus Christ centers on and hinges on the blood of Jesus poured out for us. Every generation has people that try to diminish the understanding of the blood of Jesus in our salvation. People get squeamish about that kind of talk. But Scripture is never squeamish on the fact that it is the blood of Jesus and His death that provided us with the power to overcome. Without Jesus Christ dying on the cross, there is absolutely no way you or I would have the power to do anything about this foe. At the same time, because of the power of Jesus Christ, we have the ability to stand in the strength of Christ toe-to-toe with the eternal enemy of God. Now, that doesn't mean you want to go face to face, but it means we are covered in his blood. Um, 
There's a song that um, growing up we used to sing when we would do the Lord's Supper, or they would actually play when we were doing the Lord's Supper. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And beneath that fountain, we're plunged and lose all our guilty stains. And it has that refrain that repeats that over. It's almost haunting lose all their guilty stains. And for some reason, I don't remember that song. I remember being played at First Baptist Dyersburg where I grew up most of my time, but I don't remember it being sung at First Baptist Dyersburg. I remember it being sung at Southside Baptist Church, which is my grandfather's church. And at his church, there was this older lady. I'm sure she has gone to be with the Lord now because she was, when I was four or five, she was in her late 70s and early 80s. So unless there's a 115-year-old somewhere, she's gone on to be with the Lord. And she had this high-pitched, shrill voice. And she was unashamed in using it. And when we sang that song, for some reason, it was as if everyone else dropped out. It's like there's a song, I Surrender All, you know I Surrender All. And you know that I Surrender All has got a uh, underneath for the basses to sing, right? That I Surrender, I Surrender All. They do that. And there was a guy in our church named Bill Jones who from the choir, you could hear that bass reverberate out. And so every time I sing I Surrender All, I hear Bill Jones' voice doing that little underneath. But she would sing this, this high-pitched kind of shrill Lose all their guilty stains. That's another one of those things. As a child, I remember hearing that and thinking, well, somebody needs to remind her that there are other people here, right? But the older I got and I understood that, that verse, now it's almost a haunting thing in my mind when I hear that being played. And it just is the truth of Scripture. That it is the power of His blood that saves us from our sin. I was uh, driving around with the boys um, a couple of days ago. Now, I mentioned in here a few weeks ago a series of videos that just came out called What's in the Bible. That, that we're using it on Sunday nights as part of our curriculum. Megan Johnson, one of our uh, um, young adults, starts to say she's past college, she's a college graduate, she's a nurse, is teaching them. It's a great new series. It's from the guy that invented uh, Veggie Tales. And he is going from Genesis to Revelation just describing Scripture in ways that kids understand. And on the second volume, they ask big questions. They have a news anchor named Buck Denver. And it's the big questions with Buck Denver. Well, on the second or third one, of they, they don't say it's a big question. They say it's a tricky bit with Buck Denver. And the question is, why did God kill all those people in the Old Testament? And Phil Vischer, talking to the kids, starts doing this description. And he goes through this masterful description of Old Testament and understanding of sin and all of this. And he said the real question is not why did God give those people what they deserved. It is why doesn't he give us what we deserve. The first way that we overcome Satan, either in temptation or in life, is through the power of the blood of Jesus.
But it's not the only way. Notice what the second thing it says is. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and then secondly, by the word of their testimony. I believe they're understanding testimony. <laughs> there is this uh, there's this very judicial sense in the New Testament about what our job is on this earth. In Acts 1.8, what does it say we are? We are his. You will be my witnesses, right? Now, we immediately, because of our context, oh, we're supposed to witness for the Lord. We're supposed to go witnessing. Exactly, we're witnesses. But if you heard the word witness outside of church, what do you think of? They're going to be a witness. In court, right? You think of somebody going in the court. And what is the job of somebody in court? Tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. They don't say anymore, but so help me God, right? What's that? Yeah. They just report what they know. They say what they saw. They tell what has happened to them or that they know about. They can't speak about conversations of other people. They can only speak about what they have had. It is their personal witness about a crime. And so you get to uh, this. And he says they overcome them by their testimony. Now, if you heard the word testimony outside of a Sunday night church service, if you heard in the street tomorrow or Tuesday you're walking in Publix and you hear somebody at the counter say, well, I wonder how that testimony went yesterday. What do you think about? Courtroom, right? And what is the testimony? It is the account of what happened, right? And so you get this sense in the New Testament when it talks over and over again. Even judgment, right? I mean, you get to the revelation, what's going to happen, there's going to be a judgment. Well, where do we think about judgments happening? It happens in a courtroom. You have this real kind of courtroom scene. And it's almost as if in this little particular passage, what he's saying is the blood of the Lamb covers them. They have the strength to do that. And the way they overcome them also is just when they're called to give a testimony of what has happened to them, they are faithful in describing what God has done in their lives. That's what a testimony is. That's what being a witness is. It is just proclaiming factually what God has done in our lives. And yet the Scripture says there is great power in the testimony. Now, here's the deal. It doesn't matter how elaborate or special or exciting the testimony is. It doesn't have to be the most spectacular description. You don't have to talk about the 412 kinds of drugs you used as a teenager. Right? You don't have to talk about the crew you ran around with. You don't have to come up with all of this crazy stuff. The power in the testimony is not the story itself. The power in the testimony is in the work that God has done in your life. And no matter who you are, you going from death unto life is a miracle of God. An absolute miracle. I was nine years old. And I was a good kid. I was not a bad kid. I was, if you want to know what I was like as a kid, spend about an hour and a half with Eli. He is me. And I am he. All right? We, we, he is like me in so many ways it is sickening at times. All right? 
We look alike. We talk alike. He drew something the other day and brought it to me. And I swear I could go into the scrapbook of my elementary school and I would have the identical same drawing. I mean, it is how we form people to this day. Neither one of us have an artistic drawing bone in our body. All right? I cannot draw. God did not gift me with the ability to do anything artistic with my hands or my voice. And unfortunately, Eli has that. All right? So I was a good kid. Nine years old, I, I was... I wasn't bad. I didn't do anything bad. I, I mean, you know, I uh, got too rowdy with my friends when they came over sometimes. I wrestled with my brother. I said a mean thing every now and then about somebody. But at nine years old, when I was sitting in the pew at First Baptist Church, Dyersburg, Tennessee, and I said to the Lord, finally, Lord, take my life. I give it unto you. Take everything I have. Lord, I ask you to come and indwell me. And I didn't use the word indwell. I said, Lord, come live in me. And when I did that, there is no greater miracle that has ever happened in anybody else's life. Scripture says that we were dead. Not sick, not laying on the hospital bed, not being wheeled on a gurney to the emergency room. We were dead. And that when Christ entered into our lives, we were made alive. And Scripture, actually, this is kind of the cool thing. Scripture, scripture teaches that the more boring your testimony, the more powerful it can be. In 1 Corinthians, he talks to those people and he says, Remember, you guys were sinners, but you weren't anybody. You didn't have any status. You didn't have any place in this world. God rescued you. And he takes the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. In America, we've got this idea that we've got to be bigger, better, stronger. Um, I, I remember in college, we, we had a, a revival one week at Union. Some, some church had set up, they set up a big tent, and they saw they tried to find big stars to come in. Well, they didn't have a real good time at Jackson bringing in big stars. We did get the million-dollar man, the wrestler. I don't know if y'all have ever known Ted DiBiase. There you go. We got the Ted DiBiase in. Uh, but it wasn't, uh, we, yeah, it was about it. All right, that was what we had. But um, we get this idea we've got to be bigger, better, stronger. And Scripture teaches us that God works best in weakness, not in strength. Here's the third thing. Not only, if I can get there, there it is. Not only by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony, but it's also by considering our physical lives as nothing compared to our devotion to the Lord. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now, the idea here is literally, in this picture, the, the idea behind it is the, the, that these are martyrs. These are people that have given their life. So... Um, like the uh, out of the original 12 disciples one is the one that betrayed Jesus and you had 11 others left John is the only one that we know that lived until old age the other 10 were martyred for their faith and so it includes them but it also includes uh, in our understanding guys that came after that guys like Polycarp and John Wycliffe and uh, the Christians that were burned by Nero and 
uh, includes people uh, that John would be dealing with that would have been across, he'd been exiled, and so those people were in the church that he was a part of over in Asia and those areas would have been affected by this, the people that had given their lives. But the idea here isn't so much just that the act that they gave their lives, it was that their physical lives meant nothing compared to their devotion to their Savior. And not to over-spiritualize things and say, well, that just means we've got to be willing to do whatever for the Lord. Because that would take away some from the actual fact that they gave their lives for the Lord. But in America today, we don't really have that threat. Now, we have ridicule. We have people thinking we're ridiculous and not very smart. And in light of the fact that God predicted the world was going to end and it didn't, there are people jumping up and down and rejoicing, see the Christians all are wrong, and it makes us look bad, and we know that. But in some ways, what Scripture teaches us here is we ought to be saying, so what? Who cares? I don't mean who cares in a flippant way where we don't care about the people that are out there that are, that are dying and going to hell. I mean, if they consider us to be absent-minded or lower in IQ or um, duped or tricked or fooled, what should it matter to us? And if it ends up costing us job promotions or friendships, if it ends up costing us places in the community or statuses among people that we know, it's not that big of a deal compared to our relationship with the Lord. It goes back to what we talked about with Paul. Paul says in there, he talks about all that stuff, and he says, I consider it now all rubbish, dog poop. Then he says after that, I consider everything I lost rubbish. Paul was a guy that was on the fast track to success. He was the lead persecutor of this new movement that was tearing apart the Jewish synagogue. He was the front line enforcer. And in generally when it comes to places like that, if you're the front line enforcer, you're next in line for leadership. Right? I mean, even in American history, who was the front line battle warrior best known in the Revolutionary War? George Washington, who was the first president of the United States. George Washington, right? Our greatest military heroes in the past, it's not as much true today, but in the past when combat was more personal than flying drones out on a TV screen. Eisenhower. You had these guys that rose to power. And so Paul was that guy. He was the next one. He was the next in line in the good old boy network of ancient Jerusalem. And yet he's walking down the Damascus Road one day and Jesus shows up. And Paul never gives any indication. They thought, well, what if I'm going to lose this? But at some point in his life he thought about it because he said, all that stuff I lost... I consider rubbish. All that stuff I gave up is nothing. Now, what did he give it up for? 
Well, he gave it up for his relationship with Christ, but then he tells us in Philippians 3, and it was to know Christ and to share with him in his sufferings and to know the power of his resurrection. What he says here in Revelation chapter 12 is the way we overcome the enemy in our lives is that we trust in the blood of Jesus. We depend on what God has done and is doing in our lives. And we consider whatever we lose as rubbish compared to knowing Him. When Satan has nothing to take away from you, he has nothing to take away from you. Now, this is what I mean. When you hold on loosely to everything you have in life, so if something falls away, that's not a big deal. I still have Christ. Then Satan really can't harm you. It's when we hold closely to stuff that we get in trouble. You know the story, right, of the experiment where they um, they put a, a, a coconut in a trap for a monkey over in Africa. And the way it trapped the monkeys is that the monkey would reach in to get the coconut and they would hold on and when they closed into a fist with the coconut they couldn't get their hand back out and all the monkey had to do was to let go and the monkeys won't let go they hold on so tightly that they they try and try to get it out and in their insistence on taking it with them they get trapped truth is there's all kinds of stuff in our life Expectations, relationships, stuff, titles, positions, statuses that if we're not careful, we'll hold so tightly onto them that Satan will trap us in some way. And our testimony will be less effective and our lives will be less fulfilling. And so the way we overcome is through the blood of Jesus, through the truth of what has happened in our lives. And through realizing that what we have going here, the physical nature of this world is nothing compared to the reality of knowing God.